0: What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs>
1: <know>. chart music. <laughs> <laughs> chart music.
2: Hey up you pop crazed youngsters, and welcome back to Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the sofa of a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and as always, I'm joined by two people who know their shit backwards, forwards, sideways, and inside out. First up, my man, Taylor Parks. Hello, Taylor. How are you, sir?
3: All right. If I really struggle, I can remember a time when it was slightly worse than this.
2: Excellent. that's, That's That's good. It's good. Brilliant. And uh, my second guest was right with us from day one. And he makes a very welcome return. David Stubbs. David, how are you? I oh, know.
4: I'm not doing so bad. Thank you very much.
2: Excellent. Have okay. a merry sunny day. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? Nice day to be stuck in the house, fucking yes. about with audacity Good. and Skype. Mm. So anyway, David, you uh, you got another book on, aren't you? You're a fucking machine. You are, aren't you, mate?
4: Yeah, sort of. Um, perhaps a sort of traction engine, really, rather than a kind of, you know, sort of um, E-type. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of angles on electronic music, the meaning of electronic music, if I dare sort of, you know, wax slightly Ooh. pretentious. It's, it's called Mars by 1980. So that right. has a kind of resonance, you know, with people who were probably around in the 20th century, which, as we know, was the best century apart from the, um, you know, the Holocaust and the dictators and whatever. But well, um, yeah. other than that, yeah. pretty good century. And um, definitely yeah. not, a pack, you know, this one's not a pack, it. So there's an element of the sort of nostalgia of futurism electronics as part of the kind of theme of the whole thing. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing.
3: It definitely improved about halfway through, didn't it, that said. It did,
4: yes. Yeah. Uh, i would just say, yeah, anything anybody born after 1945 had a pretty good deal.
2: We did. Right, so if you're a new listener or you've just been listening to this and going, what the fuck are they going on about? Let me tell you what goes down. We take one episode of Top of the Pops from back in the day and we pull it to bits until there's no more left. Uh, there's a chance that your favourite band or artist might get coated down, but we never forget that they've been on Top of the Pops more than we have this episode takes us right back to august the 14th 1980 just one year ahead of the last chart music uh but there's been a lot of changes hasn't there in, the, in in the pop world it was a
4: strange time really i mean it's just on the kind of cusp really it takes a long time for a sort of decade to get going really and you know the 80s just hasn't got get, got going at this point at all really and they're there's a strange atmosphere to this particular one, it's almost like they're having a rethink. It's, it's, it's before suddenly top pops went and the color came pouring, flags it from and all sides. Blues, yeah, yeah, and the whole new pop explosion happened. It's a weird little hiatus. There's almost, I don't know what they're trying to do here, but the vibe is almost, I don't know, sort of reflective. It's almost a bit old grey whistle test like the vibe. Whereas the dance studio, just... there's no sort of like you know, dubious sort of flirting with like you know, people in the um you know, in, in the crowd or whatever, you know, that's all, you know, it's almost, it, it, it's, you know, it's more the kind of the man bonding between um, Roger Daltrey and Tommy Vance. Um, so it's mm. immediately, they set a very strange vibe and then that's really odd opening in which Roger Daltrey says, well, I'm gutted. I came along, see the clash and they're not playing, are they?
3: It seems to me it's not so much that the 80s haven't started yet, but there is in fact a sort of cultural interregnum between the 70s and the 80s. If you look at the... The very late seventies, the post-punk seventies, mm. and the very early eighties—that's a—that's a period all of its own of uh, *Minder* and not the nine o'clock news—and uh, mm. this fits in very nicely. It's—it's
2: uh, it's the 70s is isn't it? Yeah. So, what was in the news at this time? Well, Jimmy Carter has just accepted the Democratic nomination in New York. A state judge in Texas has blocked the exhumation of Lee Harvey Oswald. Four glue sniffers are on trial in Glasgow for watching their friend drown while they thought they were just hallucinating. Margaret Thatcher visits the 12,000 family who have bought their own council house in East London and is booed by the rest of the street, But the big news is that Donington is getting ready for the first ever Monsters of Rock at the weekend. The cover of the NME this week is The Beat and the cover of Smash Hits is The Police. The number one LP in the UK is Back in Black by ACDC. In the USA, the number one single is Magic by Olivia Newton-John and the number one LP is Emotional Rescue by The Rolling Stones so chaps what were we doing in August of 1918
4: um, I was I was preparing my I, um, to go to Oxford um, well I was doing the Oxbridge exams so I was still in the sixth form I was in the lower six and um, um, I think at that point I was really just my sort of music taste really just entered a new level of sort of critical intensity um, I'd really started things like Joy Division Suicide Why mm. you know really trying to go into the sort of post-punk deep end of things and I was disdainful of the shallow, as you can imagine, and probably didn't watch Top of the Pops as often as oh, know, yes might have done in previous years. Um, read The Enemy absolutely voraciously and intensely and took absolutely every word to heart and probably remember things people wrote then that the writers themselves, I'm sure, have long forgotten.
2: Fucking hell, it was a lot of words back then, wasn't yeah, it?
4: absolutely, yeah. I mean, that was the year, I mean, you think Enemy, in 1980, Jean-Paul Sartre died and Enemy ran an obituary. Um, I don't think that would be happening in 2017 Um, so yeah the NME was a part of this kind of sort of intensity Um, um, yeah it it was obviously a very sort of fascinating formative year for me and I was also, another thing about me at that point is I was absolutely shit scared of nuclear war Um, you know I really was I just Mm. didn't really dare to think more than two or three months ahead um, in terms of the world you know carrying on and what have you Um, I was absolutely paralysed
3: with fear about nuclear war Taylor, I was, uh, was playing football and being a pain in the ass, same as <laughs> same as now, except I could still play football. What about music
2: though? What you what were you into then?
3: Um, I was too young, really. I think it mm. was 1980 was the year that I got into music because I remember when John Lennon got killed at the end of the year, um, and I'd, I'd never heard of him, um, and then within six months I was a Beatles fanatic. So that was kind of. Yeah, I'm just, I'm still uh, watching Top of the Pops as a, uh, yeah, as a sort of detached observer. You know what I mean? This is, this is like, uh, I mean, I haven't got a big brother, but if I had, this would be the big brother's kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
2: mean, mean, for me, I was, music wise, I'd just entered the, the football supporter phase of my uh music life you know where you just lock onto one or two bands and you you just ignore all the other ones i was a i was as, as big as a jam head as a 12 year old boy could be at the time but more importantly the august of 1980 i got my first job which was uh, a program world a football program shop in uh in nottingham so yeah happy days for me so what was on telly tonight well bbc one uh, Liquid Gold, the Regents, and Dollar have all been on Cheggers Plays Pop. There's been a special edition of Panorama about Jimmy Carter and Teddy Kennedy. And just before this uh, episode of Top of the Pops, Richard Stilgo clears up all the myths about acne cream in Looking Good, Feeling Fit. No, tomorrow's will. Rick- this Richard Stilgo got a beard. Yes, he did. Yes. He I did. mean, I don't
5: know.
2: I don't, I don't know. And don't he know. wasn't Hellful a teenager either. He wasn't 14. No. Why would Richard still go? Yeah. Well, to to be honest, mate, I mean, if if Richard still goes, going to have to tackle one section of puberty. You know, thank God it's that one.
3: <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a tempting thought.
2: <laughs> on BBC Two, no, 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 no. on BBC Two, Jr. has just fucked up the family business in an episode of Dallas. And on ITV right now, there's the 1954 World War II film Conflict of Wings. Britain won. Dead. Good evening and welcome once again to Top of the Pops.
1: My name is Tommy Vance and to help me on the programme tonight I've got the Mac Vicar himself, Roger Daughtry, who's looking a bit miserable. With good reason, mate. With good reason. Why? I've come all the way here to see The Clash and now I find they're not on. Well, we've got some great people on the show.
5: Well, who have you got?
1: We've got Abba and their great single which is called The Winner Takes It All. We've got the new single by David Bowie which is called Ashes to Ashes from ELO. All their music danced to by the delectable Legs and Co. Mike Berry's back in the charts after a long absence with the sunshine of your smile. There's that great lady by the name of Grace Jones and Private Life. And as usual, the village people can't stop the music. Plus somebody new to the screen, a lady by the name of Sue Wilkinson and her incredible little single
2: in Oxfordshire in 1940, Richard Hope Weston joined the Merchant Navy at the age of 16 and eventually ended up in Seattle as radio DJ Tommy Vance. That's how he pronounced his name then, because he was a 60s and he was British and everyone British was posh, unless they were Beatles, of course. He returned to the UK and spent the mid-60s at Radio Caroline, Radio Luxembourg and Radio London. He joined the BBC World Service in the late 60s before moving to Radio 1 as a co-host of Top Gear with John Peel. And he got married to Diane Hunter of Crossroads. Really? Miss Diane? Knew that. Yes, Miss Ms. Diane, yes. Wow. <laughs> in the early 70s, a memo was circulated amongst the BBC accusing him of being the king of the orgies and part of a ring of five DJs who played records in return for prostitutes. And he's currently hosting the Friday Rock Show, which has just started, and that was pretty much the the the, the niche he was going to uh, he he was going to be known as for the rest of his radio career. Tommy Vance, what do we think of him? Yeah,
4: he's. I suppose it's a bit like kind of Kid Jensen at the time. There was that kind of though for slightly kind of transatlantic people, but I mean, as English in a sense of the American, you know, you know, pronounced Kettering Kettering um and um yes. yeah it, it, it's uh, and i and i it, it, it's 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 sort of like a final desperate hangover from really punk really because obviously the great thing that punk did was just unashamedly kind of if you're from england if you were london, london yeah, yeah. and the, 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 you know you had that kind of rod stewart sort of thing before that where where everybody yeah. had to speak in a kind of faux american accent or whatever and punk explodes all that everything becomes regional local and strong regional accents and you know all over the world or whatever, if you're Germany you singing German or whatever. And this kind of idea of a sort of soft American accent as like the default um accent is something that Punk's supposed to explode, but of course it hasn't. Something like Tommy Vance still shows that people are still very wistful for that idea and still want it.
3: He's unmistakably an adult, isn't he? That's what's what really stands out. So he's not trying to be youthful. Yes. He's not he's not trying to, you know, not ten years off his age by the way he by the way he carries on in front of the camera this is he's a man
2: yeah in a in a child's world i mean you do get the feeling with this episode because for some bizarre reason everybody seems to be sitting down in, in the links it does feel a bit I don't know, school assembly-like. Or, absolutely,
4: or like the annual British science lecture yes. or something like that. Yes, they definitely sort of trying to kind of, you know, sit down and attend this week's hits. Yes, there's, yes, the, I mean, if you consider like the kind of rampant party atmosphere and the, the dee-boppers mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, that kind of came coursing in about just a year or so later. I mean, this was obviously, I don't know, it's almost like, this was, you know, in the history of Top the Pops, they're putting their foot on the ball and pausing for thought, something like that. But yes, for some reason, they've decided to make it slightly whistle-testy um, and almost have a kind of critique going on. And obviously, in his, albeit slightly facile way, I think Roger Daugherty is there to have a sort of sidelong angle on this old top pop business, you know, with his various kind of comments and snarky remarks and what have you. And Tommy Vance of playing straight man to him there, you know.
2: Well, why is he on? Well... Top of the Pops has just come off a nine-week break due to the Musicians' Union strike, which happened after the BBC had axed five of its 11 house orchestras. And this is the second one since the layoff. You remember that strike, don't we? The middle of the middle of the 80s, all those violinists huddling around mm. braziers, mm. throwing <laughs> bricks at police officers and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah, second, yeah, secondary pitching from like orchestras in Scotland and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah So definitely. for
2: some reason, possibly to do with an enforced relaunch, Top of the Pops was going through a phase of having guest co-presenters. The previous week was Elton John. Uh, the week after this one was Cliff Richard. Then it was B.A. Robertson. Then it was Kevin Keegan. And finally, Russ Abbott <laughs> before they packed it in. Yeah, that that actually happened. You can just sense, you know, they're going
4: off this great pelton. And you're thinking, I mean, you
2: can't sustain
4: that pace, unfortunately. Elton, Cliffy, Roger and then B.A. Robertson. You can just sense that, you know, that steep decline until we hit that. And, and then you hit the Abbott pits and you realise, no, there's, there's no way back now. Diminishing
2: yeah. returns
3: also what what uh what makes it worse the although the, despite the fact that it's quite a dead audience, they're mic'd up really loud. Have you, did you notice yes the yes. much louder than normal, and they're not doing anything. So all the time that, that Tom and Roger are bantering or uh there's records, playing, you can hear people chatting amongst themselves it sound, it, it sounds like a school dinner hall. They're, they're all <laughs> chattering and nattering, and it's echoey and it's much too loud in compared to the music. And it's yeah, it's it's I don't know. It's like they they just got some amateurs in to do it. it sounds terrible. Yeah. So yeah. before
2: we before we go any further, chaps, um, I don't know how this conversation is going to do. I go. I've got I've got an inkling. Um, let's start by each of us going around the circle and saying something positive about Roger Daltrey. Taylor. He's got a great voice.
4: David. My turn. Oh, you caught me on the hop now. Um, I said it. I said it. They, There's
3: nothing left now. All
4: right. I know, I, oh, yes, in fact, I was just a variation. He's got a great voice. If You, you, you need to have four people in a band because three doesn't really work. And it, otherwise, the Who would be been a bit like the jam. Sorry, Al. And you couldn't really have Pete Townsend singing. And yeah, you needed a kind of a sort of plausible sort of puppet up front, which is effectively what Roger Daltry was. Um, and I'm sure that he farms excellent trout.
3: Yes. Also, he used, he used to, he used to beat up the other members of the who when they started, because they were all like piss takers and they were always on drugs and drunk. And he was wanted to be more professional. And he, he used to punch them in the face all the time. They got sick of it and threw him out the band and he said, all right, um, I won't beat you up anymore. Um, and he kept to it despite Keith Moon, like antagonizing and goading him as much as possible. Uh, Stopped beating them up, just like that. And to be a, an inveterate thug and to change your ways, uh, just like that, it's, that's impressive self-control, I think. I mean, never mind the fact that be, being a fucking millionaire pop star was the prize at the other end if you could just keep your fists to yourself.
2: But yeah, and of course, the other thing about Roger Daltrey is—I mean, how many other lead singers can you think of who are the third or possibly even fourth most important member of their band?
4: Yeah, I probably, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, joint
4: equal fourth, I would say, yeah. Mm. Also, well, well, yeah, one more thing i just got to say, because it's all pointing out now. He put me on the road to vegetarianism. He was on the multicoloured swap shop, or swap shop as it might even have been abbreviated by then, at that point, Noel Evans was interviewing. And he was talking about his farming, and he was talking about the fact that, obviously, they kind of rear their own produce and meat. And, um, you know, he's talking about that, you know, obviously they'd slaughter one of their animals, and that would then provide them with meat. And he says, um, you know, for the next few weeks, he says, yeah. And, of course, they gave all their animals names. He said, yeah, we're just eating area at the moment. So they had these animals, a pet, they gave him a name, Harry, slaughtered him, and then they were eating him They said, oh, Harry tastes good, doesn't he? And I just thought, how, it just felt monstrous to me. I can't really kind of go into all of that, but how could you be that kind of blithe? And it's obviously, it set me on my kind of sentimental squeamish path towards vegetarianism. So, yeah, it's another good thing that Roger Daltrey did.
2: Wow. Well, I'm I'm just going to add, um, I really like the way he sings the word cold in Can't Explain. And the way he swings a microphone around, like he did at Woodstock, that's that's impressive.
3: Introduced by Tommy Vance as the McVicar himself. Yes. Which I, I thought that was
2: played by Molly
3: Weir. <laughs> I, I Surely Tommy Vance knew who John McVicar was, right? Mm. Surely Tommy Vance knew John McVicar. Yeah. Perhaps. It's, it's bizarre that he, that... that introduction was allowed to pass but
2: yeah well maybe uh mcvicker actually saw tommy vanser's video in brass eye you know you've gone done it again no <laughs> pint of foaming not brown ale for you mr mcvicker this is a complete sidebar but just me. i might as well um, hey man we specialize in sidebars mate.
4: john john mcvicker was in correspondence with my ex-wife over sort of you know in terms of like the work that she was doing and she was working with this organization in prisons, or or anyway something like that and he he was involved in that, and and he corresponded with her. And at one point, he said that like one of the ways he was making a living was he was leading classes for women and how to achieve orgasm.
2: What? Yeah,
4: he wrote it quite candidly. He just sort offhandedly. He it was incidentally. You know, he said he couldn't make it next Thursday because he he led regular classes for women.
3: <laughs> so, you know, Twenty pound an hour.
4: Yes. Well, I he didn't. He didn't divulge the rates, but this is something he was doing apparently towards the end of his day.
2: Well, of course, Roger Daltrey is one of the reasons that Roger Daltrey's is on top of the pops is that he's just come off the, the reference to McVicar is the film McVicar, which is probably Roger Daltrey's best acting performance. But then again, that is like describing something as the best ballet company in Mansfield. But <laughs> do you remember anything about that film? i oh, break your jaw. <laughs> the only thing I can remember about that film is the other prisoner who's got a nudie woman on his door and she's she's kind of like the photos taken from behind her and there's this the spy hole that that the uh, the prison officer looks through is exactly where her arsehole is. So every time he looks inside the, the the cell, um you can just see this eye in this woman's arsehole. That's the only thing I can remember about that film. <laughs> Clever, isn't it? It's it's very clever, man. If I ever go into prison, I'm definitely going to do that. Don't you
3: think, though, with Rog, when you see him uh, not framed on the stage and not, you know, framed by a film camera, when you see him in the top of the pop studio just standing there, he's he's so unimposing, isn't he? Mm. It's rare to see a macho rock frontman so physically unimposing. It's not just that he's dinky; it's that he's uh, almost bashful. You mm. know, he's doesn't doesn't seem self-confident yes. at all. It's quite surprising. It's like, a, it's like a fish out of water, isn't it? You, yeah, you can see why he won such plaudits as an actor with his uh, <laughs> slick <laughs> slick links here. Oh, I came all the way here to see the clash. All the way, you're from Shepherds Bush, mate. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's it's like if you want to advertise how far you've moved from your route, <laughs> standing <laughs> Shepherds, I came all the way, yeah, I left the trout to come here for the Clash. <laughs> it's, the, it's the second half of 1980. Look at Is
2: me, it, I like the Clash. Yeah, he's gone out from the troll. It's such a
4: bizarre and strange opening. Is it meant... I mean, obviously, the Clash was saying that at that point that they would refuse to do Top of the Pops, point blank. if so we want it to stop. They, you know, it's kind of awkward that at least one group did this. I don't want everybody not to play Top of the Pops, but it was kind of fun that one group said, just, we're not going to play. We stand against it, you know. And I kind of like that bit. It's it's, it's a strange thing in the light of that to kind of actually bring up at the top of the show in a way that just seems to kind of create amusement. really. I mean, it's not even banter, really. It's just a kind of awkward slightly morbid remark at the beginning of a rather depressing dinner party or something. It's a very, very strange opening indeed.
2: He's promoting the new single Free Me, which is stuck at number 39, and it has been for two weeks. I mean, we're not going to see this. uh, This never appeared on Top of the Pops, but it is worth talking about, isn't it? In fact, they don't even
3: mention it. They don't even mention that he's got a record out.
2: Yeah, until the end. Until the very end. end. But they don't even tell you what it's called. But it's a magnificent video, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's
4: it's it's astonishing. Yeah. Um sort of it's almost like got elements of um, early German expressionism, the cabinet of Doctor Caligari or whatever, and the way that the kind of the sheer expression is like as like the enormous bloke, um, sort of, you know, advanced on him with menaces, possibly of a kind of, you know, yeah sodomite nature um in that kind of makeshift sort of so you know and, um self and, he, and um, he
2: wears throughout the video he wears the expression of a terrified horse yes, it really does yes. we'll, we'll be having it on our video playlist i strongly recommend everyone listening to this to to to, to go and check the video out It's the be- it's best thing amazing. about
3: it the best thing about it is that it's like roger is so macho that he doesn't understand mm. homoeroticism. It's like he's, he's exactly, yeah. so deep in it that it's like a like mm. a moustache on a copper in yes. nineteen nine in nineteen ninety one. Mm. It's like he, yeah. he has no idea. Just it 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 you know it's so hard, so tough, so manly. It means nothing to him. Mm. There's there's something
4: inadvertent going on. But obviously, what's happened? Like a lot of people of his generation. It's nineteen eighty and They realise they've got to sort of taper. They look a bit a little bit. Look a little bit new wave, you yes. know, suddenly cropped, and the result is something that is, yes, inadvertently um, homoerotic.
2: Definitely. Well, I, I, I'm of the opinion that the, the 70s began when um Roger Daltrey developed a perm, and I also believe that the 70s mm. ended when Roger Daltrey got rid of his perm. Exactly. Yeah, and he's, he's, a, he's got. It's like. kind of like rocking this kind of midlife crisis look with a leather jacket and the t-shirt, but he he wears it well. You have got to give that. Yeah, to but him. this.
3: This is that, all those 60s pop stars, this is that period when they were sort of mid to late 30s. With that difficult, that you're not really middle-aged. Like by any uh, objective standards, you're a young young person, but you're not young in pop music terms. So like they've still got the leathers. Some of them have still got long hair. You know, they're still prancing about, but their faces are just starting to go. You know what I mean? It's, it's really interesting. When I was 15, it was hilarious. You'd look at... Uh, Uh, what he would be here, what 36 or something Roger, you'd look at him and it would just be laughable, you know whereas now I think, (laughs) look at this young fella
2: We're used to having the top 30 rundown right at the top of the show, but now you're being told exactly what's on, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a very bad thing myself.
3: Yeah, the idea is that you you see that and you think, oh I mustn't switch off, I've I've got to hang on for Sue Wilkinson (laughs) Uh, but it's it, you know, it could work both ways. It ruin, ruins it, really, doesn't it? Ruins it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this
4: is it. It's, it's, you know, it's just taken away the sort of sense of breathless suspense and the ascent through the hit parade. It's, um, yeah. Yeah, again, it gives it back to, you know, it's almost like a kind of academic paper. And it's just like, you know, the characters of academic writing is like to say what you're about to say, then say it, then say what you just said. And it's almost like, and um, yes, announcing everything in detail in advance like that definitely gives it that kind of British science lecture. Yeah, that we mentioned earlier.
2: You know, I might, I might turn over and watch that World War Two film. You know, although it does mean that 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 Tommy
3: gets to uh, tell us that later on it's ELO, all their music danced <laughs> to by the delectable Legs and Co. Because he's so under rehearsed, right? That's Tommy Vance, he's a, a, a very experienced DJ, right? He's been going for more than ten years. He, he can't even do the links on top of the pops, probably. He hasn't rehearsed. He doesn't know what he's doing. He says ELO. He can't remember what the song's called. He just says, Oh, all yes. their music danced to yeah. by the Delectable Legs and Co. That's not going to happen. <laughs>
1: Now, we start off with a band who six months ago, everybody thought, well, they probably would have to get out of the business because their lead singer has left. But they'd found themselves now a very, very clever man from Scotland by the name of Mid Their name is Ultravox, and this is the single that's 29 in the charts. It's called Sleepwalk. <laughs>
2: Tommy Vance can't be bothered to stand up as he points out that everyone had thought Ultravox had shot it, but then they met a very clever man from Scotland. He didn't want to be in the band, so they got in instead. After the original band split up when John Fox left in 1979, keyboardist Billy Curry hooked up with Midgeor, previously of Slick, The Rich, Kids and Thin Lizzy, to assist with Visage and asked him to be the lead singer of the reformed Ultravox. This is the first track from their new LP Vienna, and it's up from number 33 to number 29. This is the future, isn't it? As far as 1980 goes, synthesizers and all, all that well,
4: absolutely. I mean, it, it's strange, really, because he's obviously, as you point out, he's a serial opportunist, um mid-year, you know, starts off with Slick, who is set from the same stable as Bay City Rollers, then jumps on the whole punk mm. thing with Rich, you know, Rich Kid or whatever, and obviously sort of flirting with Thin Lizzy in the meantime, and then all of a sudden, you know, this kind of electropop, and he's probably a little bit, in fairness, he's a little bit further ahead when it comes to the electropop thing as, uh, in terms of what's going on, although... You know, things are moving very quickly at that point. Um so yes, yeah, so here he perhaps does look like some sort of electronic music pioneer or whatever, um, as opposed to mm. the kind of essentially the opportunity he always was. But yeah. um
2: <laughs> like a lot of the songs of the time, I have to say that it starts very arresting and it catches the catches mm. the ear, but you want it to fuck off after a bit, don't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. After about thirty seconds. Yeah. But I, I yeah. think the key thing about this is it might be the first time that a, a load of people are standing behind a load of keyboards on top of the pops without beards and flares. True, but they, but they do have to deal with the. I think the problem
3: that we discussed last time we did this, uh, the the question of how to perform from behind keyboards. Well, exactly. Yes. Uh, in this case, they solved the problem with a. A, a legs only rubber man dance that, yes. that the guitar guitarist from Fine Young Cannibals would have rejected <laughs> as too undignified. The, the funny thing is as well, you look at Midge in this, and he's still at this stage where, the, in his own mind, there is a sense in which he's like Brian Ferry. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> he really he's doing those sort of turns and like putting his chin down and that. It's oh, it's awful because you look at him and all you can hear is. The landlord has specified that no DSS. Right? That's, there's no, there's nothing, nothing of Brian Ferry about him at all, apart from the sense of being uh, quite empty inside, and the untied bow tie. But he's yeah. got it so it's, symmetrical. I, mean, I could do that. It you know. looks
2: like it, it looked. The first time I saw this, I thought it, it got like two wine bottles around his neck. <laughs> two. two. It's, he's, he's gone for that kind of like you know lounge lizard look, but he's got it so precise that it he just, it's, it's just, it's just self defeating. But if you're somebody like
4: mid Ewer, this is how you ultimately get by. I mean, absolute sort of brazen confidence and shamelessness and disregard for mm. like past complete failures or whatever. It's, it's, you know, that's it, that's how you do it, I suppose. Well, he's gone um, for like
2: Taylor says, he's gone for Brian Ferry, but the 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 overall mm. look is Eddie Shoestring, isn't it?
4: <laughs> it's, yeah, and then there's, of course, the Tash as well. There which, we um, go, yeah. But it's, it's interesting, I mean, the whole thing about performing behind keyboards, because it's not like rock and roll didn't have, you know, there's a lot of from the beginning. I mean, whether it's some, anybody from Jerry D. Lewis or whatever, to even like some Elton John or whatever, and yet it's yeah. still something that sort of people feel desperately awkward about. And it's one of these things that I think is what repressed... The kind of progress of sort of synth music, you know, that could have like sort of developed and what could have perhaps developed a little bit earlier. But I think the people were really, you know, a lot of people deeply uncomfortable with the posture that you assume when you're playing yeah. a keyboard, yeah. whatever. And, and that, you know, and they're far, you know, and it's far easier to kind of either sort of be a lead vocalist and sort of strike those kind of particular kind of bullish poses or. You know, like wraps all around a guitar or whatever and use it for obvious kind of phallic purposes. And yeah, and I think there's still a deep awkwardness about the keyboard and a deep suspicion of the keyboard.
3: Not not least from Tommy Vance, because when this is finished and he comes back on, he says, I'm not a guitar in sight. Like despite the fact that yes. it, by this <laughs> point he, he's the only person in Britain who finds that shocking in some way.
2: Yes. <laughs> I mean, Billy Curry, I believe it is. He makes a very gallant effort to go a bit mad in the middle of the eight, but it it just doesn't come off. And, yeah, it's it's a clear case of keyboardist envy here, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you get the feeling off him, like, they're saying, look, yes, okay, so we've got synths and keyboards and everything, but we're still a proper band, honest. Look at us going mad. But,
4: in a way, it's almost like, at this point, you've got Electropop, pop it's not been coloured in yet. And it kind of gets coloured in, uh, you know, with like new whatever, and various things like that. And, and um, at this stage, it's, yeah.
3: But the thing with Mitch, it. you think, why doesn't he look at himself on TV and think, oh, God, I have to, I have to change everything about myself. But he doesn't, right? Um, but if he had done, it, it'd be, you know, it'd be branch manager yes. of Foxton's <laughs> now. It's uh, It's... It, what
2: is that, good or bad? I don't know. <laughs> and one thing that did strike me about this: no, no syndromes, a proper drum kit. Yeah, it was all the rage then. It's good as well. It's a
3: good thing. Like the uh, analog synths and a real drum kit sounds always sounds good. That's what's on all those mm. early Newman records. That's why they still sound good now. Yeah, exactly. Because the, yeah. the sound of a sound of a real drum kit doesn't date as fast as the sound of electronic drums. And again,
4: that's another thing of the taboos around like synthpop electronic music is this idea that work isn't being done. You know, nothing there has to be a spectacle of labour, there has to be a spectacle of effort. You know, I mean the old, years later when the orb go on and they just press um, they click a keyboard and play chess, you know, throughout the blue room when, when they have that as a hit, you know. <laughs> and they're being sarcastic about well, that particular point, you know, that people need to feel that there's work being done, otherwise there's somehow being shortchanged. So a proper drum kit mm. represents physical effort, you know, it's a signifier.
2: So Sleepwalk would drop two places the following week, but then go back up to number 29, but that was its highest position. The follow-up, Passing Strangers, would fail to make the top 40 in October of 1980, and it wasn't until January of 1981 that they released Vienna. Can you imagine that they, they sat on that song for like, you know, three goes around? Well, yeah, yeah,
4: it's um, Vienna. It means nothing to me <laughs> it's, 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 it's um yeah I yes I find it very alienating at the time um,
3: maybe they maybe they just listened to it and thought yeah it's crap in it really it, this is <laughs> this is just a overblown rubbish
4: I was into dancing at the time and I could simply not understand the point of songs like that or if you go gonna that what you're supposed to do? You just sort of hang around the dance floor for two and a half, three minutes, and then they kind of suddenly inject it. Then, then it was just like, "What were supposed to be doing? Those first two and a half minutes? Or we have to sit on the side, then slide in on our knees onto the dance." Standing by statues
2: or something like that, or waltzing, obviously. Come
3: on, you're supposed to smoke mysteriously.
2: Yes, yes, yeah, and walk about in raincoats. Mm, yeah space you know it's, to yeah. the to the bar or the toilets or something S- some of okay. us do that all the time
1: and that was major who's the lead vocalist now with Ultravox, and the record number 20 line in the charts it's called Sleepwalk. and not a guitar in sight let me turn out to roger goldley Roger recently I think just come from the States, isn't it? You've been yeah, doing just a tour? Did a, did a tour over there with The Who,
5: yeah. Uh-huh. Good tour? Yeah, down in Texas with
1: The Sun. Uh, I wonder where you got The Sun down. Yeah, they got all our sun down there, mate. Yeah. What about a uh, new album as far as The Who is concerned?
5: Well, it should be out in around uh, February. We're still recording
1: it. It's taken quite a long time, but uh, hopefully February. I've always wanted to ask you this question. With regard to singers, what sort of singers do you like? Who do you listen to? Oh, so many. I think it's easier to name people I don't like. It is? But there's a... So many people like... Would you react positively
5: to David Bowie? Yeah, one of the governors. Great I, guy. I'm glad you always said always that. something
1: different. Because here he is. And this piece of film, incidentally, costs something like £40,000 to make and it features David Bowie with his new single. It's gone in straight at four and it's called Ashes to Ashes.
2: Tommy Vance mentions that there's not a guitar in sight in the Ultravox song and Roger Daltrey shoots him the filthiest look did you notice that
3: that's just that's just roger's natural expression if you look at him on this his eyes are darting all around the studio the whole time like as if as if the the tax man's about or something he (laughs) he doesn't look comfortable at any point
2: or a really big angry trout
3: (laughs) harry's back
2: even in this episode you can sense
4: that dark new forces at you and know, the forces of disco and inauthenticity and guitarlessness are all gathering like oh storm God, clouds yeah. and you know and Roger can sort of sense in his bunions that you know things things have gone afoul.
2: There's a brief chat about the Who's latest American tour, which was a success. And then a discussion about David Bowie, who, according to Daltrey, is one of the governors who mm. always brings something different. And who yeah. according to Tommy Vance is called David Bowie. Oh yeah, did he is, drop the B bomb? Oh
3: yeah yeah he does it all the way through all the way through yeah that's
2: awful did, have you ever said Bowie in your lifetime? I have. Oh
3: when did you stop?
2: Well, from up north,
4: David Bowie, you
2: know.
4: <laughs> a sort of regional, um you know there's regional allowances made.
3: It's nice though when Rog responds positively to the mention of uh, David Bowie's name, or David Bowie's name. Um yeah. it's sort of like it's terrible but it's like you know when you're talking to like an old bloke or a stranger at yes. a bus stop or in the pub or something yes. and he's really rough-arsed yeah. and somehow the conversation gets round to like a delicate subject or something and you're like your yeah. heart's in your mouth and then he says oh, i don't see anything wrong with it and suddenly you turn into one of those upper middle class liberals well done well done <laughs> yes. well done for, for for not being a bigot it's a bit like that you know what i mean it's like oh he, oh, Roger, he likes david bowie he's not
2: yeah So, the lead-off single from forthcoming LP Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. uh, This is the follow-up to his cover of Alabama Song, which got to number 23 in March of 1980, and he's fucking mental. As Tommy points out, it's a hugely expensive video, but it was actually made at a cost of over a quarter of a million pounds, which is a bit more than the £40,000 that Tommy mentions. It was filmed at Pet Level in East Sussex with Steve Strange and a few of his mates, who had been asked to appear in it the night before when Bowie pitched up at the Blitz Club. Despite being described in the review section of Smash Hits as not a hit, it's this week's highest new entry at number four. I think it is the
4: first point at which you sense a song being defined by its video. I mean, you know, it's not mm. so many years later that people would say things like, have you seen the latest Paul or Abdul single or something like that, which is just something, an inconceivable, yeah. weird thing to say to people of the early generation. But you do absolutely associate... This particular single with that video. And of course that raises the complaint that people have with the videos is therefore you've got a single association with a piece of music and it's which is a bit depressing. You should have a million associations, you know, or imaginary visual associations with a piece of music. But we kind of saddle with this one really. And to me, I think that as because I don't I, mean, I don't know, it's to me it's 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 the infancy of video. There's a lot of money heaps in it, there's a lot of ideas in it, there's a lot of colour, and there's a sort of sense of the nascent sort of but in itself, I think it's just a bit of a rubbish video. Just technically, it's that era where people don't use grainy um, imagery. You know, it, 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 everything is studio lit. You know, you don't have that kind of sort of filmic grain that you get on videos a bit later on, I think, lends them a slight air of sophistication, probably. You know, the, all, all the kind of naivety, the sort of and conceived ideas are almost like overlit. you know, because everything, you know, the, the, it's it, everything's slightly over-bright. And, of course, a lot of the kind of, you know, the effects or whatever, when he's bobbing in the water look pretty awful or whatever. So I suppose I've always had a slight problem with that. At the same time, it is an absolute, you know, it's a moment. I mean, it is a futuristic moment. It's just in itself, I think it's, you know, a bit of a mess.
2: Because I remember working in the programme shop, one of the managers there was a bloke called Dave Bullis, mm. and he was an absolute fucking Bowie head. It was it was insane about him. And mm. I remember when it got to number four, listening to the charts that that Tuesday, and he was just running up and down the counters, just punching the ear And he's like, "Yeah, fucking Bowie's back." See,
3: this is his best single. I think I think Ever. this is his best single. Yeah, I think this is his best single. But uh, it, I hate the video, and I always have done, and I think it's awful because this is the side of of Bowie that gave us Toya and Hazel O'Connor and won the juggler this is this is it it's the bit that everyone likes to sort of sweep under the carpet you know that as well as being fantastic he he was also a pillock you know and brought us brought into pop music this uh, sort of dreadful Kind of amateur avant-garde theatre stuff. It's like well, it was this the the, the
4: the pop harlequin or whatever. Let's face it, Leo Sayer did it a few years
2: earlier.
3: But, yeah, but uh, but yeah. The, but the thing mm. is with Bowie, it he did it with enough quality in the actual music that it allowed pop music to be more thoroughly patronized by people who are into highbrow art. Right, like I mm. went to that V and A exhibition. About Bowie a couple of years ago, yeah. and it was uh, it was all right. But whenever you read the stuff, like the the blurb that went with the exhibits, it was this terrible, terrible thing that like they had no idea of what the actual value of David Bowie was, right? That, which mm. is that he was a a great singer and a great songwriter and a intriguing stylist, and uh, mm. <laughs> th- th- this is it's not that he brought kabuki theatre into pop music or something that's not important nobody cares it's the what it is it's that also there's something there's something deeply patronising about it because these people they're into highbrow art they know that someone dressed as a fucking piero walking along an orange <clears throat> beach and then reacting <clears throat> to having their picture taken by a paparazzo as though they've been shot with a gun is not good art <laughs> right this is isn't good art <clears throat> ar- it's crap right it's like fucking <clears throat> street corner shit but they they know it's, but they treat it be, like as though it should be taken seriously, like it's the best that these rock and roll fellas can do, mm. you know, like a dog making a paw print or a or a kid who's been raised by chimpanzees pointing to himself and, and saying, Daniel, <laughs> it's, just, it's like an incredible achievement yeah. by the standards of rock and roll. This is bullshit. The whole point is that it's a fundamental mis- misunderstanding of what rock and roll is. And the idea that if you, if you do something that a proper artist would, would sneer at, yeah. That makes you automatically better than Bo Diddley. It's hmm. fucking offensive. It's, know, like the, it. it's like it's like the
4: literary thing where people like Christopher Briggs would elevate someone like Bob Dylan or whatever, you know, because he's the one thing that redeems the whole medium because um, because of the words, because of lyrics, and because he almost aspires to the condition, the altogether superior condition of literature. Yeah.
3: Yeah, but the thing is, what what they're also missing is that the point is in rock and roll you can dress. Like a cock, uh, make mm. some sort of grand failed stab mm. at profundity or whatever, uh, and it doesn't matter that it's failed because mm. it might work in another way. It might work as as a laugh or mm. as a gimmick or mm. as cheap flash, and that's fine. It doesn't matter. That's just that's that's okay. Mm. You have the freedom to do that in pop music in a way that you don't in uh, other art forms. Mm. Um, it it yeah, and as soon as you lose that. Concept that all the all the all the, the, all the possibility is uh, drained out of pop music, hmm.
2: but it's a good song though,
3: isn't it? Yeah, it's his best one.
2: I mean, is this the weirdest number one single there's ever been?
4: It's got to be up there, I think. What well, up the week, Moldy Old Dough?
3: <laughs> See, I can never remember what was number one. It was Kings of the Wild Frontier, number one. No, it wasn't. No. was it? because that's. That's a weirder record sonically than Ashes to Ashes. Or as yeah. weird. But people don't think of mm. it like that.
2: And isn't it a shame that Steve Strange didn't get in Boy George and someone out of Spandau Bali to walk in front of that bulldozer? Because then it would be like the next generation, like paying homage to, to the source. <clears> but <throat> but then again he probably thought, fuck that, I'm having all the all the glory.
3: I often thought it was a shame that
2: Steve Strange
3: didn't walk in front of a bulldozer. <laughs>
2: And what do you think? What do you think David Bowie's mum's saying to him there at the end? I think it's a, It's either it's either take that make-up off and get a proper job, or I don't care who you, I don't care who you are, duck, as long as you're happy. It's either or, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's the latter, really.
3: You'll always be my son. Just, <laughs> you'll
2: come out of this phase, don't worry. Yeah, you'll you be, always do. You start making estate agent music in a couple of years. so the following week it hit number one and it stayed there for two weeks eventually being knocked off by Start by The Jam the follow up fashion got to number five The Scary Monsters would be his first number one LP in the UK since Diamond Dogs in 1974
5: he's still one of the greatest anyway there's an awful lot I'd like to say about Legs and Co but I'm afraid uh, they'll probably bleep me out if I do. What I can say is here they are, dancing to an ELO song all over the world.
2: Roger Daltrey casts more praise upon David Bowie, and that alludes to how much he'd like to give legs and calm one as he introduces ELO. If I had to say what I really want to say, they'd have to bleep it out. And it, oh, I can fun. imagine. Do you, do you remember that film he was in in the mid seventies, List Mania, where he's just there on the end of this massive cock with yes. his, uh, women on it. That I think that's I think that's what he was thinking about.
3: See the same the same thing that makes Roger Daltrey a great and convincing rock and roll singer and frontman of the old school, um, also. Off stage leads to this right? and it's it's relatively benign mm. compared mm. to what some of these people have got wrong with them yes uh, but but it hasn't aged well no,
2: it really hasn't has it <laughs>
3: it's, I think mm. that's the nicest way of putting it I
2: mean it's just a strange
4: thing. I would have to use ex- expletives i mean <laughs> how would those sentences pan out that weren't in any way kind of actionable in some way it's uh yeah, um, yeah. It's, but what's the strange thing, of course, pants people as ever? Um, there's a kind of... I think they're just the beginning to... At this point, oh, yeah, sorry, legs and co. At this point, I think that people like hot gossip from getting... Uh, they're starting to kind of realise there's a gap in the market for somebody that actually dances in a rather erotic way, even as so there's just a tiny bit of bump and grind going on in the pants people and in legs and co's routines. But most of them are still doing these kind of... This weird little lexicon of like yeah. little kicks and sort of grinds and sort of eurythmic type movements or whatever that you know wouldn't look out of place at a kind of grammar school. Yeah, I mean, you're right, you know.
2: David, because at this time, uh, Hot Gossip uh, would be dancing with black men, <gasps> and um, yeah, you also had uh, Hills Angels, they'd just started, and uh, yeah, even Little yeah. and Large had their own dance troupe called Foxy Feeling. And yeah. Do you remember them?
3: There was the roly I do not? <laughs> I can clearly remember the competition they had to name the new Top of the Pops dance mm. troupe, and even as a kid, being a little bit, um, a little bit unnerved when it was legs and like this sort of disembodied, uh, objectified legs and coat, right? And it's mm. like you know, I, it was like it's like the runner-up was pussy, etc. You know what I mean? <laughs> All, like, tits plus, <laughs>
2: and ass uh,
3: incorporated. Uh, uh, Meat, meat. Here they are. Yeah, I know it's it's it is disturbing, but I don't know. It's uh, the thing is to counteract that they've all got names like your aunt is. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're called Jill, Pauline, Rosemary, Pauline. Sue, um, Lulu it's like yeah it's like you can't go, go and see your auntie lulu it's it's almost like it's another bucket of cold water over the audience
2: so they're dancing to all over the world by elo formed in birmingham in 1970 by Jeff jefflin and roy Wood as an offshoot of the move elo had a debut top 10 hit with 105.3 overture before roy Wood left to form wizard Jeff jefflin took over and the band had 19 uk chart hits 13 of which went top 10 this is a follow-up to their first and only number one Xanadu, with olivia newton john which is still in the charts at number 20 and it's the second cut from the soundtrack to that film which starred olivia newton john gene Kelly, and swan out of the warriors and it's up from number 24 to number 18 do we talk about the song or do we talk about the routine first chaps well,
4: no, the routine, I mean, you could certainly say about Flick with it. she was never afraid to kind of um, give a kind of absolutely literal, scrupulously
2: literal interpretation of any given song. So there's the world, and there they are all around it. <laughs> yeah, they've got a massive globe that they're all dancing around, and it's it's like a sexy version of the International Day episode in Peppa Pig, mm. the one <laughs> yes. that ends up with global yes. conflict in the adventure playground, mm. and the line, oh, Great Britain's Britain is on the slide. On the slide, yeah. Yes. <laughs> & Co are dancing on podiums in front of a huge rotating globe, like a sexy BBC One logo of the time. Shall we go through the the nationalities, Taylor?
3: I've been examining this very closely. There's, uh, there's, um, uh, yeah, the the some of them are pretty obvious, right? Like there's, uh, yeah, well, there, most the,
2: of them are pretty obvious.
3: Yeah, the last in the stars and stripes and cowboy hat. Yeah, fairly safe bet that she's representing America. There's mm. uh one with chopsticks in her hair and a kimono, a skimpy kimono. Um, yeah, of course. What else is there? There's a a sort of um, a Scot in a in a tam shanter and a, a little kilt. Um, yes. There's a sort of
2: like porn star kilt.
3: Yeah, basically. There's a there's a, a, a I think Hawaiian, but yes. despite the fact that they've already got America, and it's that is part of America. So maybe it's just a general Polynesian. With a sort of a flower lee or whatever they're called. Yeah, right? she's got she's
2: got a lei and a scrap of glittery right. material wrapped round her ass. That'll do for Hawaii. Yeah, and there's there's hen Knight Lederhosen as well, isn't there for Germany? That's right.
3: Sort of yeah, Leiderhosen um, and a one of those little alpine hats. The mystery yes. is the one at the front. Yes. Who? Yeah. Now we, we did a bit of pre-production on this. We had we a little, did. Yes, a little did. chat. It's like, can we establish what? nationality she's supposed to be. When well, I looked at this, I showed a friend, and we came to the conclusion that it's Britain, right? Because, right. Why? Because she's, got, Cause she's I know, got this
2: big tiara thing on, yeah, that yeah, looks like it, railings.
3: The, it, yeah, it looks like park railings, but it's still yeah. a crown. And I think right. the dress is uh, I think the dress is a uh, Union Jack, but we just can't see it because of the degraded quality of the video file. Yeah, I think so. My there's God, no other would... explanation. It's a process of elimination. And I know there's already a Scott so you say, yeah. well, we've already had got Well, yeah, but we've already had Hawaii
2: and America. Yeah, so. and they're different to us anyway, aren't they? Well,
3: yeah, but not in 1980. They, they, no, that's true. they were perfectly happy <laughs> to... Yeah. But, of yeah, it's, I think that it's supposed to be Britain. That would also explain why she's at the front.
2: All right, beat that. Well, and, and, and the thing is, they're all on podium, so it's got this go-go element about it, but they, they, they seem constrained, and that they're, they're not free to do the normal shit. But again, it's
4: like fifty-fifty, isn't it? It's go-go-ish, and yet it's done in a kind of chase, yeah. sort of nineteen-fifties sort of way. It's, it's, um,
2: um, yeah, it's more stop-stop mm, stop than go-go, mm, isn't mm. it? But my theory <laughs> about the last one is that maybe she was going to wear a skimpy hijab, but they got cold feet at the last minute because you know, nineteen-eighty, death <laughs> of the princess, and all that, and uh, she had to rummage around the bottom of the legs and coat dress-up box, which. Judging by the skimpiness of the outfits, it's about the size of a shoebox. So you had to go down
3: the local park with a hacksaw. Yes,
2: yes. <laughs> so the song ELO. How do we feel about ELO?
4: Ooh, I used to have a kind of um, aversion to ELO because basically there was a lot of competition around 1980. In fact, for um, the record player, we had like one record player between three boys, and like it was competition, three way competition between me wanting to play all kind, of me Joy Division, me Suicide, whatever. Um, my brother Nick wanted to play ELO out of the blue, over and over and over. My youngest brother wanted to play UB forty, even when they'd cracked out a bit. And so it was just it was just constant war warfare. And so UB forty, it's a bit like asking a bloke of a certain age what he thinks of Japan or whatever, and his views are coloured by the war, you know, obviously about what he thinks of Japan and Japanese folks. So it is with me and ELO.
5: Taylor,
3: my view of ELO is uh, tainted by the fact that they tortured my granddad. <laughs> No, it probably best not to say that um you see i'm i'm from the west midlands and elo it's like along with slade and jasper carrot it's sort of a it's like it's like what the beatles are to liverpool you know you sort of you're expected to like this right you have to you have to ex- feel this local pride um but i'm from that generation that sort of reacted against that a little bit um they're all right but it's you know the you really only need you only need the, to hear one song because if you layer that much production on everything you do ultimately it you know the surface is identical on every mm. track
2: I mean, personally I like this song I, I I much prefer it to don't bring me down and um, rock and roll is king I think it, I think it, this to, to me this is probably the last great ELO song. It's certainly better than Xanadu, which got to number one. They're
3: all right. They're all right. There's nothing wrong with them. You know, I've I got nothing, nothing bad to say about them beyond that. But they're they're like bland in the in the truest sense, right? Not in the sense of oh, they're bland as in their you know there's something wretched and feeble about them. They're just bland. They're just they're bland like chicken korma, you know.
2: But I mean, the thing that gets me is if if you're having a party all over the world, where do you put all the coats?
3: <laughs> yeah, imagine imagine the trying to get a cab back. You know, is,
2: is it fucking? Mm. Yeah, come on in. Uh, yeah, Germany, that's the coat room. I'm in Botswana. Can you? Can you?
3: Yeah, I know. It's how long's it going to be then? And
4: any time anybody mentions a party in pop or rock music, you realize you think that like this event could have done with a bit of a kind of pre thought yeah. from a sort of experienced yeah. entertainment secretary, <laughs> basically. <laughs> And this is yet another case in point.
2: So all over the world jumped up to number 11, its highest position. Uh, The third and final track from the Xanadu original soundtrack, Don't Walk Away, only got as far as number 21. And the follow-up to that Hold On Tight was their last top five hit. Anything else anyone wants to say about legs and comb? Yeah, but they'd have to
0: bleep me out if I did. I tell you, (laughs) I'd do time if they could see inside my brain.
1: (laughs) Let's have beautifully interpreting ELO and in the number 18 sound of the moment in the top 30, which, of course, is all over the world. Now, here's a song that first came out in 1913. It's taken 67 years to become a hit, but a hit it certainly is. It's come into the charts at 22. It's Mike Berry and the sunshine of your smile. Dear face
2: that
5: holds
2: So sweet a smile Tommy, who clearly can't be asked to stand up this episode, introduces Mike Berry. Born Michael Bourne in Northampton in 1942, Mike Berry had his first chart hit in 1961 with a tribute to Buddy Holly, which was banned by the BBC for being too morbid, and a number six hit in 1963 with Don't You Think It's Time. Both songs were produced by Joe Meek. After a career as a racing driver, he returned to music in the 1970s, having a few hits in Holland as a rock and roll revivalist and an actor in over 50 adverts, which led to him playing the dad in Wurzel Gummidge, making him the second cast member to have a top 40 hit in 1980. Do you remember the other one? Jeffrey Bailden. <laughs> Wurzel's song by John Pertwee got to number 33 in March of this year, which was just the Wurzel Gummidge theme tune. Uh, in 1980, he linked up with Chaz Hodges of Chaz and Dave and recorded this song, which, as Tommy Vance has pointed out, is dead old. It's up from number 37 to number 22. It's straight between the eyes of your gran, isn't it, Taylor?
3: Yeah, it's, it, and it's not as good as I got them Can't Get Enough of Them Blue Ribbon Blues. <laughs> no, it really isn't. <laughs> blue Ribbon's the of biscuit I always choose. Um that was his best work, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he looks like one of CI5 that isn't Bodie or Doyle. Do you know yes. what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> the one that,
2: one that dies in that episode. Yeah, his days are numbered. Yeah, uh, but he, he has a brief he... conversation with them telling he's had enough and he's getting out soon.
0: Yeah,
2: and yeah. Then,
0: then a... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
2: Greek terrorist just <laughs> takes him out. He
3: he also looks like an early adopter of lager. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like all his yes, mates are still just going to the pub and just order a pint. Just say a pint. And you get yeah. means you
2: get a pint of bitter.
3: It, yeah. He's very much into lager in a in a slightly taller glass.
2: But I remember watching this at some in the living room. It was one of my rare excursions down to the living room to watch Top of the Pops. And, and the bit where he talks to the audience during the song My Mum Was there and he and she just went, Ah, he can't believe he's on top of the pops. He's like shocked that he's that he's there and he's he's got he's got this far in his in his in his singing career. He's wearing a standard CNA suit with an open shirt, but he, but it's not too open. I mean the the kind of like the couple of years ago probably be right down to the navel. But you know, we're we're moving away from that disco period, aren't we here? But yeah. yeah I mean,
3: he's, not, he's not using sex to sell the product. He's uh, No. He, he he's, he's aspiring to be what at the time was known as dishy, right? You know, that yes. sort of male attractiveness that is not overtly sexual or macho, uh, dishy.
4: But, you know, 1913, you know, this uh, song was written in 1913. Well, I mean, there would have been people sitting in living rooms, probably thousands upon thousands of people sitting in living rooms, sitting, watching... Top of the Pops because the tele was always on unless it was a power cut. So they are sitting watching it. Thousands upon thousands of people with memories in their childhood of the Edwardian age. Um and you know and actually no and top of the pops did have that kind of you know for a long time it did appeal right across the generations yes. and it was very conscious of doing so and it was very much kind of an active part of the kind of pop market. You know, was you know mm-hmm. it was was people of that age and that that would probably have obtained right up until the early 80s. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have to say that the, the 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 advert that stands out for me, the one that he did, was one for I think it was Thompson Holidays, where he's just sitting in his chalet and he's he's got really, he's he's kind of like his hands and legs and even his toe extends, and that that freaked oh, yeah. me out as a kid. Do you remember that one? Yeah, he's sitting in this wicker chair and he's not moving anywhere and he's wearing double denim and he's uh, I remember his arm extends about 20 feet to rub sun cream into his wife's back uh, at least I think it was his raw wife it might not have been he might have just been a an extendable molester <laughs> but yeah anything else to, anything else to say about this song it is proper Radio 2 nonsense isn't it or Radio 2 as it was in 1980 I
4: think we've deconstructed every last possible atom of it
2: so the single would jump up to number 13 the next week and eventually made it to number 9. The follow-up, if only I could make you care, only got to number 37. However, he would go on to replace Mr. Lucas in Are You Being Served? and would dominate the final ever episode when his character Bert Spooner lands a record deal and gets the entire shop floor to back him on a recording of Chanson D'Amour.
1: Well, that goes to prove that you can't keep a good song down. That was my barrier number 22 this week in our chart, and it's called The Sunshine of Your Smile. Do you belong to Glasgow? I'm afraid so. Well, there's nothing wrong with Glasgow. No. If the arrows are going up, it means it's going up, doesn't it? Um, I think so. If the arrows are going down, it means it's going down. Definitely. Would you like to know what's what uh, in the chart? Yeah. Okay, stick around, because here it comes. <laughs> at number 30 this week, we have You have Gotta Be a Hustler by Sue Wilkinson. Then at number 29, Sleepwalk, a new entry for Box. At number 28, The Yellow Magic Orchestra. At 27, a new entry, Can't Stop the Music Village People. At 26, Neon Nights by The Black Sabbath. At 25, Me, Myself, I by Joan Trading. At number 24, Private Life, on in a minute by Grace Jones. At number 23, we have The Undertones. At number 22, The Sunshine of Your Smile by Mike Berry. At number 21, we've got Darts. At 20, ELO. At number 19, we've got Now There There, My Dear, by Dexes. At 18, This Week, All Over The World, by ELO. At number 17, Are You Getting Enough? Hot Chocolate. At number 16, Feels Like I'm In Love, up 13 places, Kelly Marie. At 15, Bad Manners. At number 14, Could You Be Loved by Bob Marley. At number 13, Tom Hark, up 13 places by the Piranhas. Babushka, Kate Bush at 12. And at number 11, we have Mariana, up three positions by the Gibson Brothers. And on camera three, we've got Roger Daltrey. Oh.
5: He does go on. Anyway, time for a whole song now with a, a lady here for her first time live, Grace Jones with a pretender's song, Private
2: Life. Tommy manages to sit up and patronises the <laughs> fuck out of a girl from Glasgow as he explains the new graphics on the chart rundown.
3: Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's... You know, the arrows are pointing up. That means it's going up, right? If The thing is, right, even though he's uh, younger than Savile, it's almost more disturbing when he tries to interact with the kids because with Savile, despite the fact that we now know that he was a wrong-un, he seems to have the mind of a child, right? Whereas Tommy Vance is an adult. He's obviously, albeit an adult in tight jeans and plimsolls, but he's he's an adult, and it doesn't feel right. It seems... Even though we know that he's clean, although clean in that respect, not clean in every respect, I, I happen to have seen a internal BBC disciplinary memo from 1970 right. when he's uh, um, in a spot of bother for how he's spoken to the commissioner on the front gate um, <laughs> when told that there was no room for him to park his car. In the BBC <laughs> car park. This is when he was the host of Disco Two, which apparently oh, he, yes. he apparently thought uh, uh, entitled him to a car parking space. Um, <laughs> there was probably like an Apollo mission at the time or something, but no, it's just yeah. Um, and apparently he used such foul and offensive language that the man was in tears. And, Fucking uh,
2: hell! We're talking yeah. a 1970s commissioner.
3: Yeah, I think he must have used He's probably words been in that, a war and everything.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These
3: are words that have never been heard before or since. Um, so yeah, he's uh, he had his hard side, you know, as mm. you'd expect, but from a, a rock warrior. But yeah, it's uh it having him in the room just feels a bit
2: I don't know. He's like a maths teacher trying to explain equations or something to a very thick child.
3: Yeah, but a math teacher you you wouldn't have fucked with.
2: No, no, someone who was really good with um, throwing a board rubber. But
4: yes, a world of in you know, a male environment, you know, the world of hard rock and all the maleness, the attendant maleness that comes with that, in which women are a kind of slightly kind of mysterious uh, siren force over the kind of
2: waters of incomprehension. <laughs> Bless them. Yeah. <laughs> And he introduces Grace Jones. Born in Spanish town, Jamaica, Grace Jones moved to New York at 13, eventually became a model, moved to Paris in 1970 and was signed by Island Records in 1977 as a disco artist. In 1980, she moved away from disco, like many other people did, and recorded the LP Warm Leatherette with Sly and Robert. This is the third release in a mere three months from that LP and the first single from that album to make the charts. And uh, as Roger Daltrey points out, it's a cover of a Pretender song off their debut album. And it's up from number 25 to 24. I've got to say, the first thing I noticed about this is that the kids in the audience look really fucking intimidated at first, don't they? Hmm. Apart from one, there's one white lad in a knitted tan with a bobble and a white vest, and he's skanking away like a good'un.
3: Yeah, sorry. But also it's a a super Anglo-Saxon Top of the pops audience, and you know they yes. can bop around. To, uh, but as soon as a track comes on that's actually got a kind of a wicked, complex, invasive rhythm, mm. they have no idea what to no. do. No, absolutely um, no idea. If they can't do some variant of the skinhead stomp, they're just they're lost <laughs> completely.
4: Uh, you know, also, the, obviously, clearly the way that she presents. I mean, obviously, she's just bringing that kind of hauteur that comes from, you know, working as a kind of model or whatever, you know, to pop. You know, and that's part of what she does. But it does look incredibly sort of, I mean, you know, the kind of the, the sort of figure that she cuts. I mean, it's 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 something that would actually be too scary in 2017. It almost belongs to the year 2047. It's almost like anticipating mm. a sort of evolution of like the kind of way women can present in pop that you know, in 1980, it's almost like a kind of you know, it's a glimpse several decades hence, and it's almost like now that that wouldn't that just you know that, that it, it, it's something that date you know in a sense dates insofar as we're kind of behind those times now, as it we're all behind that kind of level of like sophistication that um, she represents. It's um, well, yeah, you know, it, it's it's supreme as that, and it, it's it's I mean, in the slide Robbie stand there. I mean, it just stands. Absolutely pristine, now mm. it's like work and things like that. You know the nuts and bolts of it and the surfaces of it. And all you know, they're absolutely immaculate to this day. you know, They're not aged. Yeah, and, and I've never heard, heard the
2: original version by the Pretenders, and I listened to it before this, and it's all right, but it does sound like a cover version of Private Life by Grace Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah she yeah. fucking owns that song, and, and Chrissy Hynde did, you know, was completely upfront about it and said, "Yeah, that's the that's the definitive mm. version." Hmm. And of course, the other shocking thing of that is that she's got a fag on yeah, her stage. yeah
3: yeah, ten quid, ten quid says that's no
2: super king, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely, yeah, it's probably a soronni, isn't it, or something like that,
3: yeah, this was the days when it was sophisticated to have a fag on the go, yeah, it's it's yeah, and it she but she doesn't she doesn't puff on it, no at any point, no, that yeah. <laughs> or tap tap the, tap the ash into the palm no, of her other yes. hand yes.
2: <laughs> so the, the song is obviously about one of Grace's mates kicking off about lads and how, they, how they're let down and she's not having it is she <laughs> Grace Jones in 1980 would have fucking hated Facebook wouldn't she and it, 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 it's ironic I
4: suppose I always think that there were two figures that year that emerged around 1981 one was Grace Jones one was Sheena Easton Yes. And um, Sheena Reeson was almost like the kind of the other end of the sort of universe in terms of pop and feminism, whatever. However, Sheena Reeson did go on to make a fortune. She made loads of money in property and property development, Good and sure. became kind of, you know, by the late like, the eighties, you know, she was worth millions and millions. Yeah. Um, up you don't, know, my baby yeah. takes them. Whereas Grace Jones, with all of the kind of power that she summons on stage or whatever, by that point she was bankrupt. Yeah, it's um, shocking, isn't um, you know, it? So, different forms of empowerment, I suppose.
3: Sheena Easton made a fortune from property. Is that true?
4: She's just she's one of these people, yeah, just invested what she got very well, yeah, and just bought a load of stuff in LA. Like,
2: a bit like John Lydon, you know.
3: So her slogan, come inside my sugar walls. Yes.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> like I said, the audience just, just clearly don't know what to do to this song. He's, he's, he's just, I mean, because, you know, reggae and all that kind of stuff, it's already been around, but this is a, this is like a new era, isn't it? It's bizarre the way that Top of the
4: Pops takes things like this in their stride or whatever, and after a it's two minutes and then swiftly sort of dispatches it on to the next thing. And mm. well, there's that strange comment from Johnny Vans at the end, says something like, oh, should "I should have <laughs> heard of that song features yeah. some of the best <laughs> reggae musicians around, like like Paul
2: <laughs> Nicholas." And it's just reggae like it used to be.
3: <laughs> I like the video where you know the video where at the start she's got a mask of her own face and then she takes it off. But of course, what yeah, that's fucking terrifying, they, isn't they, it? What unable to do with the uh, special effects of the time, but would have been brilliant as if she just kept taking off more and more faces, yes, till eventually there's just a neck and yeah. neck bone. In, in a hood. Yes, yes. That would be amazing, but it's, they couldn't do it.
2: So the single would only jump up one place the following week and peaked at number 17. The follow up, Pull Up to the Bumper, would only make it to number 53 in June of 1981 because British people are thick cunts, but would be re released in 1986 and get to number 12. I fucking love that song. The following year, she lamped Russell Harty on his chat show for turning his back on her. According to mm. her autobiography, she'd just done some bad Coke and a pigeon had shit on her outfit on the way in. By the end of it, she hallucinated that Russell Harty's face had changed into that of her abusive step-grandfather. Yeah, no no comment on that. <laughs>
1: That lady is as cool as both the poles on our planet. Chris Jones at number 24 this week in our top 30, and it's called Private Life. And incidentally, the record features some of the some of the finest reggae musicians musicians in Jamaica. Can't get me words it's up. She's a we... bad lady. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> she is, isn't she. You uh, know the sort of singers you like, like David Bowie, and you like rock, obviously. But what about disco? I can see you bucking along oh, to disco. Can't stand it. Oh. It's terrible. It's a terrible shame, Rog, because here
2: come the village people and can't stop the music. Watch your backs. Everyone you meet, the children. Tommy Vance describes Grace Jones as cooler... Uh, sorry, as... As cool as both the Poles on our planet. Yes.
3: He should go to Poland. There's millions of them. Yes. Sorry.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <That was nice. laughs> And then Tommy brings up the subject of disco to Roger Daltrey, who reacts very badly.
3: Yeah, this kind of undoes all that good work that he did in the
2: in the David Bowie section. He did, um, yeah, but he, he did describe yeah. Jones, uh, he did describe Grace Jones as a bad lady. Yeah, yeah.
3: I, it's a shame we don't see him standing next to her.
2: Because, but maybe because she was smoking in front of the kids. Hmm. I do. Know, I think when he said
4: bad, he kind of meant good as well, in a funny kind of way. In a rock and roll way.
2: In a run DMC kind of way. Oh, she'd fucking eat you alive, Roger. Shut your mouth.
3: (laughs) It's difficult not to hear Roger's uh, blanket condemnation of disco uh, as being somehow linked to his uh, pro-Brexit remarks of recent years. It comes from the same part of his brain somehow, you know what I mean?
2: What did he say there? He said that we had all these great bands and yeah. everything and then the then Ted Heath in the EU. Well ruined not it quite.
3: All. He said or he said basically he doesn't quite understand the difference between uh, correlation and causation. He he said uh, anyone who's worried about leaving Europe look back at the 60s it was all great. We had all these great bands like the Who uh, all going all around the world, all the fashion and all the... Fa- and it, we weren't part of Europe then, and um, then it all went to shit in the 70s. It's like Roger, he, it's as if he saw somebody throwing a stone and then a moment later saw somebody else rubbing their head. <laughs> <And> therefore, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's but it's, yeah, you can't help but feel it comes from the same sort of quite small part of his brain uh, that Uh, is closed the door on disco and indeed the same small part of his brain that he then puts into gear with a the notorious bit that people who've only seen this episode on the bbc repeats will not be aware of
2: yeah tommy introduces the village people and roger says watch your backs i mean to be fair to him he's just come out of prison (laughs) you know (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of that sort of thing goes on in the showers apparently if you watch lots of prison films so the village people formed in New York in 1977 through an advert in a music paper which read macho types wanted, must dance and have a moustache, <laughs> the village people sold 1.5 million copies of YMCA in the UK in 1978 and followed it up with In the Navy which got stuck in the number 2 slot for now. This is their first release in a year. The follow-up to *Go West*, because they've been spending time making the film. Can't stop the music. It's gone up from number 64 to number 27. David, do you remember the, the *Watch Your Backs* reference?
4: I, yeah, and I mean, no, I, I don't remember the *Watch Your Backs*, and I only saw that subsequently in in in, in, you oh, know, I in, it. in some retro clip. But no, I didn't. It didn't didn't register at the time. I was probably just about aware at this time that. Um, um, the gainers of the village people, but I have to say that it was like like an awful lot of people, like the U.S. Navy, for instance. You know, yes. um, I I think they 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 operate. You know, it was extraordinary. I think people was absolutely naive about what gainers meant. You know, visually or whatever. And I, you know, and I yeah. in this country, it was still ooh ducky and shut that door and yes. oh, on tonk how are you? And and I think that there was, was, the vast majority of people would actually, you know. Adults or whatever, it didn't have to be kids or whatever, we looked at the British people and thought, here is a kind of, yes, a cross section of um, American maleness. And um, yeah. obviously, dancing to that particular popular meme at the moment, um, disco. Look, no, everyone um, does disco, didn't they? Everyone does some disco, and like men, I'm sure the men have got to earn a living for their wives and families and their, and their families and their children. Um, they would naturally be um, participating in this as um, male musicians, and um, yes, and why not as a gimmick? Represent the um, the gamut of maleness and its various uh, types and forms. I mean, it just didn't. Didn't just didn't there was just absolutely zero recognition of the, the sort of subculture of gayness and what it represented? I mean one just didn't encounter this all suddenly recognise it and what it was. It's 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 extraordinary really. And um I, you mean, know, the I, fact I,
2: I believe I believe it had already gone round the playground by this time that the village people were gay. Because someone yes. had read it in a paper. Even though only yeah. one of them was gay, the uh the, the uh, Native American one. Hmm. But when did and you find talk- David, when did you find out that the village people were gay? Well, oh, about five minutes ago. Um <laughs> <laughs> no, it was
4: um yeah, probably about nine you no know, probably about this time. I didn't really devote a great deal of thought. I was too busy to being intense about joy division and suicide and all that kind of thing, and didn't sort of devote as much thought to which people should have done. But um no, I was probably when I started reading the music press, I was kind of conscious of of their gayness and you know, and that was probably an issue that um, you know, as a little northern lad or whatever, I was um, you know, processed. At a fairly leisurely pace. Um, but, um, but no, I mean, I, I, what's extraordinary about that? opposite is a time in which homophobia was so rife that people didn't even recognize what it was or whatever, that people could operate in. in, 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 in that, that, that's, that's the hilarity of the Finnish, Finnish people, that they could just operate in plain sight in the kind of absolute sort of middle of the pop mainstream, in the absolute center of the pop arena, and be that, do that, whatever. And it's just like. It's, it's the equivalent of the 19th century when Oscar Wilde calls a play called The Importance of Being Earnest. You know, and, and a lot of people didn't understand that earnest was a kind of, uh, was code for gay. It was very earnest, was like that time, it was, it was gay. So, you know, calling a play The Importance of Being Earnest is just having this wonderful, this wonderful snook, you know, an establishment that has no idea about Homosexuality and where he comes from, etc. etc. It's glorious that, that you have this kind of period in which they, they could do that. And then, you, get, you know, and obviously, then subsequently in the 80s, there's a massive, you know, there are, you know, there's so many, and there's still obviously then there's immense homophobia. And it's ironic that once homophobia is banished from supposedly from society at an institutional level, at least, or whatever, when the Tories have a float at like, you know, gay pride or whatever, whatever, when it's supposedly been eliminated in terms of, you know, in, in, in institutions, that prejudice is supposed to be eliminated. Where's the gay now? Pop is suddenly very, very hetero. And, like, you know, it seems that it is ironic that, like, you know, there was so much kind of, as it were, gay in pop in times of, like, sort of, you know, institutional homophobia or whatever, widespread homophobia. And now that that supposedly kind of subsided or whatever, or been banished to the margins and is now unmentionable... Similarly, you know, there, isn't, there doesn't seem to be a kind of overtly gay presence anymore in pop. You know,
3: I, I've never been to that. End. Well, the the gay the gay now is on primetime ITV <clears throat> every yeah. night, right? The the that that camp aesthetic has now been uh, absorbed into the mainstream in such a way that it's that it's it's no longer funny or flamboyant or well, you know, not like it used to be, right? It's a it's kind of a mainstream thing, and it's a shame because it. Kind of rather than operating as a sort of a as a a mockery or a burlesque of the seriousness of mainstream culture, it's now just replaced the seriousness of mainstream culture, um, which I don't think was ever the original idea. Have you ever seen the film Can't Stop the Music, of which this is the theme song? Yeah, it's it's a hard watch. I sort of thought it was going to be great. I thought it was going to be hilarious. Camp Rom. extravaganza. Yeah, yeah, and it sort of is, but the defining feature of that film is not uh, camp. It's cocaine. It's yes. too cokey, much, much too cokey. Um, it's like it's like your fifth line of really shit coke, and you half expect your head to light up like a Christmas tree, but what actually <laughs> happens is you, it's like your brain turns into scrambled eggs, and it's just uh, your internal weariness is stronger than any... Superficial, spurious energy. You know, trying to get through the end of that film is, is impossible. Yeah, Xanadu's really a
2: lot like that as well. So he got these two yeah. really fucking shit, overblown films out at the same time, and they're and they're leaving their taint on the uh, on the what's his name on the charts.
3: Yeah, it's a wash of smeared colour and yeah. muddy sounding music, and Steve Gutenberg on roller skates. Yes, and. Uh, the other thing is nobody. And in Bruce
2: Jenner starting to think about making some serious life choices. It's the 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 village people the problem was that they were
3: trying to bring their film out when no one gave a toss about the village people anymore. Exactly. It yeah. was this film came out on the same day as the Blues Brothers. It's right? Like, no, no, no. This is gone. This is this is the eighties now. It's, uh, you know. Yeah, but they were ready for it.
2: Remember? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, they, they that's, thought that's, they were anyway.
3: The other thing, if you watch that film, it's supposed to be about the village people's formation and rise to fame. But it's set in the year that it came out because people keep going, it's the 80s now. It's the (laughs) 80s. It's it's all going to be different. And it's like, why are you putting together a disco group in the 80s then? And it's like (laughs) they live in a universe where the village people haven't previously existed but are forming in 1980. Well, the same thing would have happened to them uh, as happened to that film. So
2: horrible. how old were you, you here, Taylor? Are you about, what, eight, nine?
3: Yeah, I was about eight. This was just... What do the village people mean to you? Oh, uh, wedding disco. What, you know, wedding yeah. reception disco. It's like, yeah, that, that was about it. It was um, probably what it meant to the kids from the EMU's Pink Windmill Show when they did yes. their version of this song, which uh, yes. I think is available on YouTube. Uh,
2: and, it, and that should be called Please Stop the Music. Nobody
3: in that film is actually gay as well. Like, not just the village people, but all the other uh, Everyone is heterosexual. Everyone is flirting with women and, oh, there's a foxy lady and stuff. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that it, it's the most overtly gay film that's not counting yes. pornography that's ever been made, um, yeah. it, there's something really upsetting and disappointing about that. You know what I mean? That They felt that, that yeah. they had to put that in.
2: Can't Stop the Music moved up six places to number 21 and eventually got to number 11. It was their last top 40 hit until a re-release of YMCA in 1993. After their new romantic-influenced LP Renaissance flopped, their next attempt to break the charts in 1985 stalled when the BBC banned sex over the phone. I remember that. Which is a strange,
4: yeah, just despite its, um, yeah, it was actually a very heterosexual video, in fact. Was that? Yes, it was, yes. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps that's why they banned it, because by that point, being straight was a crime, you see.
2: Yes. <laughs> you can't stop the music. You can't
5: the music. Well, they haven't got the clash, but uh, they've got some lovely birds on this show. And here's a, a really lovely one with a cleaned up version of you've got to be a hustler if you want to get on, Sue Wilkinson.
0: I remember Sally from number four, she always had boys queuing up at her door.
2: Roger is still moaning about the clash, when everyone knows that the fucking clash don't do top of the pops, but is once again distracted by the crumpet as he introduces Sue Wilkinson. Sue Wilkinson spent the 70s as a songwriter who was signed up by Chas Chandler, former manager of Jimi Hendrix and Slade, and recorded a song called You've Got To Be A Scrubber If You Want To Get On. She was informed by Doreen Davis, the executive producer of Radio 1, that the record might get some airplay if she changed the title, took out the words Bitch and Hooker, changed Now She's Mixing with the Queen to Mixing with the Cream, and changing the chorus which went, The only women making it are women who are taking it and faking it while lying in the sack on their back in the sack. It was then picked up and played to death by Kenny Everett and Dave Lee Travis, and it's up this week from number 40 to number 30. This song's fucking mental, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I've never heard it before. Um, And I I thought it was really, I thought it was facile, it was great actually. Um, Mm. I mean, he had, obviously around this time, there was probably a conflation of like sort of novelty singles by kind of women he'd never heard of that goes from that one that goes naughty, 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 with the little... Yes. You know, or there was Mary Wilson's telephone line. Then, of course, you had Flying Lizards and Money. and then telephone had, Man, you know, yeah. And he had um, um, Laurie was oh, Superman. You know, nobody ever really heard of her or whatever. And, yep. and imagine that people just sort of, you know sort of bewildered by these things that kinda occasionally pass through and might inadvertently have lumped this in more of the kind of naughty-naughty end, whereas I think it's definitely at the Laurie Anderson end, really. I mean, it's, it's almost like a bit like Robert Ashley or something like that, these kind of, like, 20th-century yeah. operas and, and and stuff. And, um, yeah, it's... It's, I don't know, it's extraordinary, actually. It's probably the thing I'd listen to... It's not got the absolute... In a way, it's something like, oh, Superman is very sort of nagging and insistent. And, you know, there's actually... This is actually, yeah. in a way, it's more involved, in a sense, really than that it's mm. it's it's probably not successful as a piece of pop music because it's not got that kind of simple sort of pulsating nagging sort of um thing that occupies your mind in a sense but it's a fascinating uh, little anomaly in pop history actually yeah
2: and uh it's a very 80s song, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. But, you know, just in terms of... I mean, of this the, is yeah. this is before kind of like bonk journalism and checkbook journalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. She's, she's She's fucking nailed it, hasn't she? Yeah, 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 It's like a little bit of sort of, yeah,
4: performance theatre or something like that. So, uh, yeah, it's mm. amazing you slip through,
3: actually. Taylor. At last, the missing link between rock follies and fascinating Aida. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all right. It's all right. It's what... It is hard to get a handle on it at first because there's not really uh, a precedent for it in pop music, at least no. not in uh, not in commercial pop music. It makes more sense when you think of it going back to those, uh, maybe those songs from the 50s, right? If you've heard those uh, those sort of light comedy albums that used to come out in the 50s of quite yeah. uh, wordy uh, songs and they'd get in usually a jazz a female jazz singer to do it. Yeah. Um, and there'd be like songs about Freudian psychiatry and uh, songs about the space race and stuff that, but done done in this kind of style, but with a, a more old-fashioned backing. It's all right. It's um, it's the detail that that makes it more interesting, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the 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 her performance is really strange. Like she's standing in a really strange way. Yes. Um, She's
2: with got, it, she's, she, there's a stool there and she's got a, she's got a knee on, one of yeah. the knees on the stool, isn't she? A like bit, she's just, a bit like Liza Minnelli cabaret kind of thing.
3: Yeah, well, like she's just broken her ankle but doesn't, yeah. doesn't want to... And so. she's
2: got this really weird belted jumpsuit with made out of clouds. <laughs> it's kind yeah, of that, thing that, Prince that. would have worn around the Love Sexy era, isn't it?
3: Yeah. And, and also Don Powell on the drums has got his of course, full
2: yes. set up
3: and he doesn't touch it. It's brilliant. No. He's got like this yeah. sort of like four grand drum kit set up, and he's just there with a little shaker out right, of a music class, going. Yeah,
4: that's 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 what gives it a slightly dreamlike quality as well. You know, you don't know there was a strange woman singing this and then Don Powell, you know, he, he He was there as well for some reason. Mm. You know, and it gets unexplained. it's unexplained. It's mentioned. You know, and I guess it's the Chas
2: Chandler Well, yeah, he, he, he actually he actually didn't play on the single. Um, Chas Chandler apparently asked her if he could appear on Top of the Pulse for some reason, mainly because, I don't know, he was in Slade in 1980 and there wasn't much else going on.
3: There's also a cable player who looks like uh, Eno if he worked on a play bus. <laughs> <laughs> this, whole, uh, this whole record and the pre- the presentation of it has come out of, as we were saying before, that uh, that weird uh, late 70s, early 80s Interregnum. But she, yes. I mean, she looks like uh, a friend of Hazel. Or something like this, you know. There's a everything about yes. it—the look—and uh, you can't imagine this record any earlier than this or any later than this. Yes, it's uh, it's definitely from that that strange uh, that strange half and half period.
2: And I, I must say that they they know they operate a sim far better than Ultravox were doing earlier. Just the minimalism just works. Far better than just layering everything on. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah,
4: I
3: tried listening to some of her other stuff. She's a bit of yeah. a one-trick pony. It has to be said. Um, everything else I could find by her was also a a, a one-note uh, feminist satire. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, oh, fair enough, but yeah, you don't make a career out of it. You
2: know? So the song moved up four places the following week to number 26 and peaked at number 25. Sue Wilkinson later relocated to Nashville for a career as a jingle writer and passed away in 2005. Yes, you've got to be a hustler if you want to get on. <sighs>
1: that's Sue Rortonson, number 30 this week, and you've got to be a hustler if you want to get on. Are you going to take her advice, do you think?
5: No, I don't think so. <laughs> you
1: don't think so? But next time you listen to the song, really listen to it, because the lyrics are very clever. Did you recognise the drummer? No, I didn't. I'll tell you, it's Don Powell out of Slade. Now I think I can satisfy you. Would you like to know what's in the top ten? Right, yeah. OK, here it is. Right. At number ten this week, we've got Funkin' for Jamaica. Up six places for Tom Brown. Number nine, Odyssey, who want to use it up and wear it out.
5: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Great singer, Leo Sayer, this week at number eight, More Than I Can Say. I can say. Up three places to number seven this week, George Give me Benson, night. and Gimme the Night. <laughs> Gap Band, great dance record, oops, upside your head at six. <laughs> The man who was on Tom of the Pops last week and makes all the ladies go woo! Roxy Music, Brian Ferry, this week at five, and oh yeah! From absolutely nowhere, to number four, that's Bowie Power, Ashes to Ashes by David Bowie.
5: Hope I've loved all I've love.
1: Sheena Easton is into the top three at number three this week, still nine to five. Standing, standing at number two this week, Diana Ross, Upside Down. And And the number one record in the United Kingdom this week is the same as last week, a beautiful song put together by a great bunch of singers from Sweden. It's ABBA, and the winner still takes it all. I don't want to talk
3: so another great Vance link. Are we going to talk about this? Of course we are. Tommy Vance homes in on a different girl and starts hassling her, and it's quite uncomfortable to watch. First of all, he's it is. he's given us the he's basically uh, saying, "Are you going to be a slag? Yeah, are you gonna are you gonna take her advice then? Like as if like she's gonna go, yep, yeah, yeah." Uh, yep starting right now. <laughs> and also, he, he does that terrible <laughs> sort of, it's like a kind of a mansplaining thing, where he says, "Now, ne- <laughs> next time you hear that record, listen to the lyrics, because they really yes. are. Because you obviously she won't have paid any attention despite knowing exactly what he meant when he said, yeah. uh, are you going to take her? And fuck? No, listen to the lyrics, bitch! Listen to the <laughs> fucking lyrics! <laughs> and then, do you know who the drummer is? Yeah, she doesn't know that. And then he says, now I think I can satisfy you. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, with a chart rundown. Yeah, he thinks he can get anywhere with that with that baritone voice. It's like, oh, I'd, I remember being on a plane once, right, when Virgin started doing planes across the Atlantic. So if you went to America as a music journalist, you were on a Virgin plane because they were the cheapest ones, right? So I was there, and they'd just brought in this new in-flight entertainment where there were about 20 radio channels of pre-recorded shows that you could listen to so i was flicking through them and there was a rock one with tommy vance hosting it and he played a track off the manic street preachers new album the holy bible and as it as it faded out at the end vance comes in and he goes great band that's the manic street preachers from their new album the holy bible amen with rock chords (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. For a start, the amen cadence it, it is a rock chord, and
2: I'm not even going to. I'm not. There's not even any way to talk about it that makes sense. <laughs> so after the top ten rundown, Tommy Vance points out that ABBA are, are all very good singers. I mean, they write songs as well. Tommy, you know two of them, and he introduces the winner takes it all, the eighteenth single release. This is the follow-up to I Have a Dream and it's the first single from the new LP Super Trooper. The big story here is that the singer Agnetta and the co-writer Bjorn have just got divorced and they've done a song about it. Oh, those Swedes. And because they're Abba, they're not in the studio. So we get the video which was shot in a seaside town in Sweden. This is its second week at number one.
3: Uh, also because it's to it, at the end of uh, Top of the Pot, even one as adult-orientated as this one, it it comes like a jolt. It's like getting a phone call with bad news when you're at the karaoke. Yes, you know what I mean it's like it's like actual the real adult world suddenly is right there, and that's what's so great about this song that it's it's universal and it's also one of the most pain-filled songs that has there's ever been. Ew. But yeah, when it when it suddenly arrives at the end of this, it's like it, you're pitched back into a world with. With ageing and death and uncertainty in it. Mm. I mean,
4: it's strange, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, on one hand, yeah, ABBA and all of their kind of works are part of the kind of four micron fittings of pop history and what have you. But I suppose at this stage, they are, it's validatory. I mean, oh, there's going to be a sudden cut off, certainly with not ABBA. Don't, ABBA don't really make it into the 80s because there's this. And then they make another album. I looked at the track listing of that. I didn't recognize a single one. This is possibly their Bergman-esque phase, as their sort of last artistic flourish. And then, of course, what's wonderful about Abbott is that they they disband never to reform. And yeah. I mean, that's apart from the Smiths or whatever. I don't think it's it's hard to think. I think if I count the finger of fingers of one hand, the number of like the acts that actually do that um, or have done that. Um, so I kind of admire them for that. It's. Um, um, I, it's hard to say about Abra. I, it's a documentary that comes on every year. I think it's called The Meaning of Abra, and I'm on it for about eight or nine minutes. And um, I, I think I was on there to play devil's advocate because I once wrote a kind of...
2: All right, David, do you take back anything you said on that documentary? Well, no, it's exactly, actually the way,
4: it edit, the way it was edited. I think they kind of actually didn't want to kind of, um, you know, sort of include some of my more extreme statements. You know, Which were? Very, very little about... Well, we hear very little about the Third Reich, for instance. Um, but anyway, that's sort of <laughs> <for another laughs> no, but it's—I uh, don't think I quite got that far. But um, um, but no, what we realise is that if you do, that they are one of these groups that are actually pretty sacred. People are Abba, actually. Um, oh yeah, yeah. You, you, you sort of poo-poo them at your peril. So I found that, you know, and I, I, I get kind of, you know, annual brickbats kind of hurled at me, virtual brickbats, you know, for even having kind of sort of issued the faintest sort of um, criticism of them.
2: Yeah. I mean, I remember by this age, you know, I was I was 12 years old and ABBA had always been there, it seemed, and I'd got a bit bored by them by now. I mean, we had we had Greatest Hits Volume 2 in our house, just like every fucker else did. So I was very familiar with their, uh, with their output. But, but by this time, it's like, oh... You know, every time an ABBA song came out, it's like, "Oh God, please don't be number one." Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like you've, 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 you know, you've had your time yeah. now. Can you just
4: There's sort of uniqueness. It. Normally, when you sort of talk about, you know, big acts, pop rock acts, you, you, the words like they paved the way for this or they rose out of that. And ABBA just seemed to this kind of vast island. Really, They didn't really pave the way for anything at all. Really, nothing really subs. I mean, you know, music then took a completely different direction. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, you know, exactly. Then it stops. There's no more ABBA after 1981, and the music kind of goes off in an entirely separate direction. Whereas, obviously, when people like Beatles finish or Zef- Jimi Hendrix finish, you can see their influence pervading in all kinds of ways, or even other pop acts. Whatever, when Motown sort of, you know, you can see Motown's influence pervading through whatever. But ABBA just seems to this. They arose out of the Eurovision Song Contest, out of that kind of international sort of Schlager fest. And then when they sort of eventually sort of sank away, it's, it's, it's as if they'd never really been around. in a funny kind of way for a group that's so ubiquitous. They don't really seem to kind of, I mean, you know, the idea of like Abbott-influenced groups, I mean, it doesn't really, you know, they or in terms of the whole history of pop and rock and whatever and everything that's kind of flowed through, they don't really seem to have a great deal to do with it. They just are unto themselves, really.
3: They were pretty um, a big influence on Northern European pop but it's hard to know whether that was a direct influence or whether that's just what your pop music sounds like if you come from the polar night, you know. like uh, If you listen to, like, Hunting High and Low by Aha, right, it doesn't particularly sound like ABBA, but it's hard to uh, imagine that it could have existed without, say, SOS, right? Uh, if you listen to the, the first half a minute of SOS, it's like a massive cold front coming in from Scandinavia. It's like totally unlike anything that you've heard before in a, in terms of the sound of it. I mean, this isn't uh, this record isn't innovative musically in the same way, but it's an unbelievable song, and this is the thing. Most people just can't write songs as well as this. They were really about the, the songs and the singing, and if you can't sing as well as that and you can't write songs as well as that, it's hard to be influenced by Ab. I
4: mean, one of the things I said in that, there broadcast actually was that there is a sort of probably inadvertent sense of racial purity about APRA. I mean, there's a sort of, I mean, not, not, not any black members, but there's a lack of blackness about them. I remember when I was kind of really kind of going for it a bit, so it, is it any coincidence that they're kind of really popular in a pretty racist country, Australia, and then didn't really break into a kind of like highly eclectic sort of um, multicultural society, i.e. America, um, where you know, where there's a serious... You know, the, the, the groovelessness, the, the the sense of funglessness or whatever, the sense of any lack of any particular sort of black element. Um, um, that was what I said. I think and that it's was only true mm-hmm. to
3: begin with. I think by the time you get to Dancing Queen, I mean, the, the backing is basically uh, Rock Your Baby, um, just with more chords in it. Um, and, you know, disco uh, was... Uh, big influence on them. They weren't funky, mm. that's for sure, mm. I'm not sure that the spectacle of uh, of bearded Nordics being funky would have been uh, all that nourishing. Mm. No, 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 no. I'm not suggesting they turn
4: into Wild Chariot or whatever. No, there was a sort of, they're interesting obviously because, you know, they, they are sort of glacially highly impressive or whatever, and they clearly got this kind of you know ingenious um ingenious nag kind have got this you know tremendous legacy that um but it is curious how there is something slightly apart about them they don't feel integrated with the rest of sort of pop well they, rock history they
3: somehow. come from a functional sane society right which most pop music doesn't like most pop music is either Brit- british or american um and maybe if we all came from a, a society as sane and functional as uh, Sweden in that period of history, uh, maybe we could, we would all be at liberty to contemplate our personal lives with such clarity and obsessive attention to detail. Um, we could all be as happy as ABBA.
4: Yeah, it's funny. I remember one trip they made to Stockholm and I took a boat trip like I always do. And I remember like, it was a Sunday morning. And it felt like I was truly an ABBA world or whatever. You You know, you look at the kind of the women sort of along the sides. It was that kind of sort of, that kind of whiteness, that freshness, that healthiness, that kind of functionality or whatever. And it just felt like sort of sheer essence of ABBA on either bank.
3: I stayed in Benny's hotel once. He's got a hotel in Stockholm. Um, And the waiter there was very keen to spill all the goss. Apparently Benny is a great guy. Who'd have thought? Very... uh, uh, very down to earth with the with the kitchen staff and everything, exactly as you predicted. Bjorn, a bit sniffy, bit, you know, maybe thinks he's above uh, an ordinary bloke working in the kitchen, waiting the tables. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to go on because I like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. What was it? Do you remember when Benny's beard, the fact that he had one, made him a figure of fun mm. those were better times yeah. right mm. those were better yes. times yeah.
4: yes quite absolutely
2: i agree with that for what for a that word it's such a miserable song isn't it this
3: uh, but it's specifically specifically adult in the sense that most songs about uh end of a relationship if they're sung by someone who's mm. 24 basically yeah. end of a relationship okay that's pretty sad but then 2 weeks later you g- can go on a spree Right. Yes. it's like, this is a song by people in—I guess they were pushing forty at the time because they weren't young yeah. when they started Abbott Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, this is a song by someone who's just finished a relationship, and it might be eight months before they have sex again. You know what I mean? Or it God, might be yeah. might be twelve months before they trust anyone again. It's all that horrible yeah. adult baggage, which usually doesn't exist in pop music. You know, usually it's mm. you go your way and I'll go mine. It's, uh, yes. That's what's slightly disturbing about it. And, uh,
4: well, if, 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 if they, if the women had sought out John the Vicar at that point, then he wouldn't have to help him out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so the single will be knocked off the top spot the following week by Ashes to Ashes, uh, but the follow-up Super Trooper will be Abba's ninth and final number one. And they split up in 1983. This has been voted the UK's favourite Abba song by viewers of ITV and Channel Five on two separate occasions. Don't know what the uh, viewers of the Dave Channel had voted as their favourite, but you know, just as well we don't know really, isn't it? <laughs>
1: Up, even though it's a really, really sad song, It's number one at the moment, it's Abba And the winner takes it all Annoyed, right, Roger, wake up When are we going to see the Who on the stage in the United Kingdom? The Who? The yeah, Who? <laughs> Never mind the Who, mate What about the Clash? No, seriously, when are you going to hit the stages? Oh, December Good one About December Might be in the charts next week, your record <laughs> <laughs> I should be so lucky I hope so Good night, everybody From all of us on Top of the Pops Bye-bye
0: Upside
2: Down, Diana Ross, the 19th solo single to make the UK charts since she went solo in 1970, and the first cut from the LP Diana, overseen by Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards, although she remixed the entire album behind their back. Because of the subsequent row between the four of them, uh, well, Rodgers, Edwards, Ross and Motown, the LP was on sale for a month before a single was released from it, and when it was, it went to number one in America. Over here, it says it's second week at number two. I mean in the last chart music we gushed about um Sheik and their work with Sister Sledge and now they're working with someone who's a bit less malleable, clearly. Yeah,
4: it's a strange one really because to be honest, it's doubtful that they have the argument really. I mean, anything that at that point that Diana Ross sort of um, lent a voice to was gonna be a hit and anything that Chic did was gonna be a hit. It didn't really matter really it's in some ways what they do what they do with it.
2: I mean, the argument between Sheik and Diana Ross about the remixing, uh, apparently a DJ in New York told Diana Ross that it was too disco air and disco had kind of like had its day, so it needed a remix. It's,
4: it, yeah, it's, 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 it's sad, really. I suppose it's going forward, really, but it was sad looking at it was that Nile Rogers documentary years ago. And how intimidated and how affected they were by that whole Disco Sucks movement, which was probably about a couple of years later. But but really how, when they're kind of making this music, you just think, you know, this is such a kind of commercially accepted, just such a sort of wonderful, joyful thing. But they're also flying in the face of this real antipathy this growing activity towards disco media that to an extent, you know, it's even being internalised by people like Diana Ross and people saying, oh no, it's an, only a short-lived medium, you know, be very, very careful here. And it's not, it's an eternal medium. It's, it's, um, but they have to fight in the face of that. And actually, in, in, when the disco sucks thing, it wasn't just a sort of last stupid white man eruption sort of thing. It did actually genuine commercial effect, you know, on them. And they actually had to kind of change tack as a result, you know, which is, you know, it's kind of sad really that, you know, the word, a, that disco should have been seen as ephemeral rather than just something that's here for good, and, you know, that uh, ephemeral disposal or whatever, and that it should have just raised the hackles that it did. It's just, you know, I just find it really sad.
3: The only way Diana Ross gets away with it is that she happens to have some of the most talented people in the world making this record. And it doesn't matter whether it's a disco record or what it is or what yeah. the year is it's just so good that it doesn't matter. Mm. But people lack
4: that kind of foresight. I mean, in a sense, yeah, disco did suffer a dip. Uh, But people assume, well, that's the end of disco, and it wasn't. It's just the initial temporary decline that things go into, you know, in pop-science or whatever, before they kind of rise again and are sort of more established permanently in the firmament. And, um, you know, I think that's how it is with... Things like sheep, you know, for instance, you know, the village people have got kind, of, you know, they, they, you know, they're with us to, you know, for the rest of time as well, you know. It's um, but people didn't think like that, and people just thought that like you'd have these ephemeral, disposable forms, mm-hmm. and that they'd be sort of com- you know, buried by you know the, what, what comes along next, and completely forgotten about. Um, and it was hard then at that point for people to realise the sort of yeah, just just how that there were really, you know, it wasn't just a case of like you know, this week's fad, next week's craze or whatever, that, you know, they really were kind of making history, a the history they've been living. Th- now it, 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 we're, we're almost like past the end of pop history really now, but at that point, um, you know, things are sort of being kind of constructed and put together that are just with us forever.
2: Yeah. So the song dropped down to number five the following week and the follow up, my old piano made it to number five in September. And that pretty much closes the book on this episode of top of the pops. So what's on TV afterwards? Well, on BBC One immediately after this is a clip show edition of Taxi, followed by Foggy visiting a lady friend in Wales in Last of the Summer Wine. And BBC One finishes off with an episode of All About Books where Russell Harty interviews the great author Emlyn Hughes about his autobiography, <laughs> Crazy Horse. <laughs>
3: oh. This has been a very Russell Harty heavy oh, episode. Hasn't yeah,
2: it really has. On BBC Two, there's a documentary about the 1978 Isle of Man double bass competition and an episode of Call My Bluff with Frank Muir, Tim Brooke Taylor, Gemma Craven, and. Russell Harty. Oh, no. <laughs> Seriously. No. I On ITV. Ray Gosling pisses about in the Pennines on this England. There's a repeat of Edward and Mrs. Simpson, and then a repeat of the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, and late night wrestling with Kendo Nagasaki versus Russell Hartig. No, I made that one up. Sorry. (laughs) So what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? How does Roger Daltrey come off this? Because at the end, they talk about his single, and I think Tommy speculates that we might see it um, uh, in a future uh, episode of Top of the Pops. And, and Roger basically says, no, mate, He's, even he knows it's dog shit. I think,
4: to be honest, he comes across as such a sort of silly old fool that he barely sort of merits consideration, actually, in the playground the next mm. day. I think conversations mm. like to be swamped by ashes to ashes, obviously. But um, yes. you'd hope that there'll be a little bit of... Because that would be the
2: first time we'd seen that video, Definitely, it? yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
4: There'd have been a bit of consternation um, about Grace Jones, really, I thought, you know but then for God me yeah. seeing it now it's that Lester wilkinson thing that, that that takes me by surprise because it didn't register with me at the time you know I've not seen it but um but I mean I think that you know, the, the read really, for me the most powerful thing in that isn't isn't actually is it's it's grace
3: jones yes taylor Sorry, my cat's just come in <laughs> um, demanding food wait a minute wait a minute um I don't know, I'll tell you what though, the the kids in the audience weren't waiting for the playground the next day, they're yapping, yapping on and on, all the way through, Uh, that Diana Ross is is singing her heart out on the soundtrack, it's just shattering, and halfway through they fade them out and it's just the record, and thank God for that. Also I noticed on the the credits there's a, a, a bloke called Nicholas Rocker. Uh, I think he's costume or one of these things. Nicholas Rocker. Nick Rocker, surely. Why wouldn't you be Nick Rocker? Oh. <laughs> Perhaps it's an amusing
4: pun about not having any knickers. you see. Nicholas oh,
2: Rocker. Oh, Nicholas Rocker. There, wow. I yeah. uh,
4: might have missed a trick there. I reckon that Tommy would have like, heard that one. I mean, I mean this yeah. little dog whistle thing. I mean,
2: <laughs> so what are we buying on Saturday then? Private life.
3: Uh, Bowie. And Grace yeah, Jones, yeah. yeah. We'll and I a,
2: yeah,
4: and I probably bung in the Sue Wilson actually. Oh, cool,
2: get you. And what does this episode tell us about August of nineteen eighty? Well I mean I, I think I'm
4: probably a little bit older than you, you guys whatever and um, but I think that Taylor something... up. Well, it is it is it's weird. It's this slight kind of sort of quite a sort of fertile time really, and all kind of interesting things happen, but this time of complete uncertainty, you sort of you say you know the mm it's also like government wise I mean Labour's finished um, but the Tories haven't really got started yet and no one really no. is what there's nobody's calling the word thatcherism yet nobody no. is really aware of like what is about to be kind of raw. I mean obviously up in the north it's beginning to happen but it's not culturally sunk in yet the kind of transformation because the 70s and the 80s are you know very sharply differentiated decades but at this point there's there's still a lot of shadow from the seventies being cast, you know, and the eighties are only just beginning to kind of grind into action in lots of ways.
3: And also, this is the point politically where um, there's this sort of myth has developed that the, the the country was in terrible economic decline all through the seventies, and then Thatcher came in and it suddenly turned around. This is complete yep. nonsense. The the decline continued yeah, worse, for years. Yeah. The only thing the only thing was it was. Uh, A perfect continuation of the slide, except now it was, you know, it was harder to get a job and harder not to get sacked and uh, and so on. So everything was just objectively worse than it had been. Um, And this was a period where she was the least popular prime minister since records began, and heading to be uh, out on her ass in a in a couple of years if the uh, if history had uh, travelled in a slightly different path.
2: So, I think we're pretty much done with this episode. Uh, Let me just go through the usual bullshit that you have to do when you do a podcast. We're on www.chart-music.co.uk You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. and my God, we've even got a Twitter account, T O T P. Thank you very much for listening but most importantly, thank you very much to David Stubbs. Yeah. thank you very much Taylor Parks yeah. this has been Chart Music my name's Al Needham and I am cooler than both the poles on our planet ah!
0: Chart Music
1: Now, while you're inside here, you're going to have to learn a whole new language. It's not French, it's prison slang. And I've got some of it written here, so it might help you. Howard's arse means prison. One nil at half time means food. Woggy coconuts means air bricks. Gaza is a gas coin used as currency for cigarettes. Plank sanction, a one-for-one fag exchange. Sue my chin, give us a fag. I'll give you two next week. Buff my pylon, give us a fag, you owe me two, so I'm letting you off the other one. Don't buff my pylon, switch over the telly, and, uh, very, very important this one, portillo means... Watch your backs.